Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorships. So check us out at tkex.org. Got a special edition for you today. We've got a bit of a roundtable discussion with some of the OGs from the world of manual therapy massage. Really keen to dive into very open-ended topic today of what needs to change in the world of massage. So we've got Leah, Toby, and Nick. I'm going to fly through the intros, and I'll let you guys introduce yourselves one at a time, if you may. Please, Leah, tell us a bit about yourself. You've you've been on our podcast before. We're keen to hear more from you. Hi, Daniel. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm Leah Dwyer. I'm a remedial massage therapist in Sydney, Australia, and I've been massaging for about seven years now. Um, I've also lived with chronic pain now for 14 years. And one of the reasons why I became a massage therapist is because massage therapy was one of the only treatments that made me feel good for a little while. Everything else, um, you know, was either fleeting or extremely painful. And I, I ran the gamut of all the medical treatments and drugs and injections and um, really didn't get any joy in, in those departments at all. And massage was really the only thing that, that made me feel a little bit better. I've got a neuromuscular condition called uh, dystonia and it affects mostly my neck. So it's a bit like waking up with a crick in your neck every single day for 14 years. Um, so you can imagine that I, I would be looking for some type of relief quite, quite a bit. Um, and when I did get relief, I wanted to know why. What was it about massage therapy that was helping me? And at first I thought it was because they all had magic hands. And um, I decided to become a massage therapist because I wanted to have magic hands too. And I got about halfway through my diploma and I realized there was no such thing because I suddenly discovered Paul Ingram at painscience.com. And through Paul, I discovered um, a lot of evidence-based practitioners and very, very skeptical massage therapists. And that opened a whole new world for me. So before I even graduated, I was already very, very skeptical. And to be honest, in the middle of the diploma, I was really um, dismayed at the substandard level of education that I was receiving for my $15,000. And as a university graduate, I kind of expected a lot more. Um, but I got the science uh, outside of the college that I was going, and that helped me realize that what I was doing was good. What I was doing with my hands was good, but the narrative was completely different. And that's what I embraced when I finally did graduate and go out into the world and start working with people, mostly people with chronic pain. Um, but when I did graduate, I also made a little promise to myself that I would try and change things. And whether it was going to be teaching or 
policy or something, I don't know. Um, I, I felt really passionate about making a change and uh, working towards something better. That's great. So you were able to see a different narrative from outside of your education and now you want to go back a little bit and, and try and reframe and, and change a few things, update the system in a way. So yeah, that's... Ab absolutely. It's 2020. We know a lot. Uh, we know a lot about neurophysiology of touch. We know a lot about the brain. Um, we know a lot about the nervous system. We, we've always, humans have always touched each other in order to calm each other down or console each other. Touch is a very big part of most people's lives. And I think that if massage therapists kind of go a little bit more back to the roots of why humans like to be touched and especially like to be touched when they're in pain, then we're gonna actually be able to go forward. Uh, we don't need all this magical thinking, pseudoscience, fairy tale stuff. We really don't. I think a lot of what massage therapists do is good because we are very popular. Um, a lot of people keep asking for massage therapy. So obviously a lot of what we are doing is good, but the narrative behind what we are doing needs to change. And I think that that narrative can be destructive for some clients. And, you know, sometimes other clients are like, oh yeah, I thought that was a load of crap. I don't really listen to it. I just get a, a massage and then I walk out the door feeling a bit better and more mobile. So, you know, out of the mouths of our own clients, some of them are saying, yeah, I was kind of thinking that sounded like baloney. Um, but, you know, she gave me a good massage, so whatever. <laughs> anyway, a lot needs to change and that's why I'm here. I'm really looking forward to this discussion with these two great guys. Awesome. And I'll introduce one more out of those two. Toby, if you don't mind telling us a bit about yourself. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, so my name's Toby Coy. I'm also a remedial massage therapist based in Sydney. I've also been practicing for a pretty similar length of time to Leah as well. Um, I got into massage slightly differently. Um, I was actually... I got into massage through martial arts because I was training at a place in Surrey Hills, which is in Sydney. And the people that taught there used a, a certain style of working with um, people where they would pay particular attention to what they were doing with their body in terms of how relaxed they were. Um, and I, what interested me was that they seemed to have amazing insight into what people were doing with their bodies. Um, and as I was becoming more and more appreciative of, I suppose, human movement in general, and I was starting to see a bit of beauty in some, in any person skillfully and easily moving, I started to become a lot more interested in how the body worked. Um, looking back, I certain, certainly had a degree of um, mystical thinking around what they were doing. Perhaps I was easily impressed to a certain extent, but it meant that I got to this point where I just had to learn more. So I 
decided to study massage because it was a way of learning more about how the body worked. Um, and I initially just did that because I thought it would help me with my martial arts, but then that became a lot more interesting to me than, than martial arts. And I haven't hit anybody for years. Uh, <laughs> and as I was studying though, I, it, it ended up being quite useful because some of the things that people had told me when I was training about, for example, they would do a lot of work setting people up structurally so that their bodies were easily aligned to deal with incoming force, which led some people training there to have an incorrect idea that in order to move healthily or optimally, you have to have a certain position. But one of the things they said a lot at this school was that, well, it's really more about how relaxed you are that makes a much bigger difference um, and eliminating unnecessary effort than your position so by that i mean the the best people there could put themselves in a comically hunched over unergonomic position and still move very powerfully um, and the reason i bring that up is that that was actually the beginning of what got me connected with with pain science and some of the weirdness around what we do in massage because as i was studying I was taught all these structural models around how dysfunction was usually linked to some sort of structural pathology and we have to do postural assessments to understand why people don't move air quotes properly um, or why they might have pain but I was coming from a background where I'd seen that um, there are at least other factors in play with how somebody moves um, other than just the, the position of their joints, right? And what their posture looks like. And maybe some people can do wonderful things in a very hunched over posture. Um, and those questions led me to do a lot of Googling in my spare time, especially after I'd graduated. And I came across a fantastic discussion with um, somebody named Alice Sanvito, who everyone here knows of. Um, at the, at the time, I was really enamored with myofascial release. And I thought that the, the whole biotensegrity model was the, the best way that I would gain an understanding of what was happening in the, the more impressive feats that I'd seen at my martial arts school. Um, and she just systematically annihilated the, the whole myofascial model. Um, sorry to anyone listening, I, I mean that mostly in jest, right? I, what I I should rephrase. It was simply a conversation where she really had a care and attention towards what, where, what the evidence could and couldn't support. Um, and she won me over completely. So, and in that moment, I became aware that a lot of the, the treatment models that I was taught, for example, around myofascial release, didn't have a ton of evidence behind them. Um, and that kind of got the ball rolling and I became fascinated with with pain science and, and why things, why a massage has the effect that it does, why manual therapy, say in a physio session, may be effective or may be less effective than it seems. Um, and this rabbit hole has been fascinating to me and, and I love to think about it and I love to think about ways in which we, we might make healthcare better for everybody by having a more nuanced understanding of what we're doing. Um, yeah, that's me. Beautiful. And the, the thing that start that ties your two stories together would be the, the narrative has now been updated with, with our updated understanding of, of pain science. And hopefully we can instill that narrative amongst future 
massage therapists and maybe we'll, we'll dive into some of the, the changes in the educational uh, sections of, of, of certifications. And I think across the, the healthcare spectrum where we need to learn more about pain science and the more importantly, how to implement it. So Nick, all the way from the other side of the world, I respect that you're here and it's a very hot day for you over there and it's freezing here. So thank you so much for making the time, Nick. And could you tell the audience a bit about yourself? I'm a certified massage therapist here in San Diego, California. I've been pushing skin for about seven years. And in some ways, I, my journey to um, where the, uh, Leia and Toby are is quite similar, especially with Leia, because I had questioned about a lot of stuff I had thought that were true about pain and about uh, what massage therapy and, and even exercise can do for chronic pain. Uh, before I was even a massage therapist, I was a personal trainer for about 14 years. And I find that exercise itself, uh, at least for me and some of my clients who are into heavy lifting, uh, had some really good uh, painkilling benefits in the long run. So I was thinking back in 2012, what can we do for ourselves between sessions, between treatments? I mean, we can't rely on somebody to, to you know, push our skin all the time. So what can we do to take care of ourselves? So I find that exercise is probably one of the best option there is. But how it works, I had no idea how it works back then. So that's what got me into, um, got my uh, a uh, publication that I started back in late 2014, which is called a uh, massage and fitness magazine, which is supposed to be a blend of both worlds, both in the fitness realm, which includes the exercise and your diet and your diet, what you eat, and also about you know about touch as well. How touch has a uh, temporary painkilling effect for most people. And, and Leah earlier brought up a very good one about why humans like to be touched as well. And there's a lot of science behind it about how it works. But there's also one element that I recently found that uh, a lot of uh, our colleagues online have not talked about much is the social aspect behind uh, not just massage therapy, but also um, pain, about, about why we feel pain. You know, with all the stuff going on with COVID and Black Lives Matter going on, um, every how does culture, how does language and our society as a whole affect our perception of pain? And going back to uh, a lot of the narratives that we were, that Toby and uh, Leia were talking about uh, that were kind of outdated or not entirely true, but there are some social element behind some of these narratives, uh, particularly in different cultures like Iran, India, Native American tribes. They have their own narratives, their own stories about how massage therapy works or why certain exercises work. Um, for those of you who, who do Tai Chi or any type of um, <clears throat> Chinese martial arts that I'm more familiar with, there is a narrative behind why these schools think this way, even though it's maybe the reasons behind it is not entirely true. So there's a social element in these stories behind each culture that, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it, but there's a way that affects how different cultures and populations perceive pain. That maybe uh, the biology and psychology um, have not been able to explain it. Does that kind of make sense over guys? Yeah, definitely. So it's the, yeah. the kind of invisible uh, background behind the, the reasons behind the narratives and maybe yeah. the same narrative means something different in, in one culture than another. Um, yeah. Cause I have one friend up in uh, British Columbia, who actually is part of a Native American tribe there, and they have a very 
uh, strong uh, ties to their rituals and uh, healing methods over there. And <clears throat> I'm not entirely, I don't understand the, the, the narrative entirely, but there's something about how can we professionals reconcile between uh, the traditional narratives that indigenous people have and certain cultures have versus the, the modern pain science with it. That's what I'm exploring currently. That's awesome. I, I feel like that's a largely untapped area of, of, um, of discussion on the online forum. So you're really keen to, to see what comes from that, Nick. Um, I'm mm -hmm. also keen to, to see how, maybe if we can start with Leah, if, if there was one aspect of the, the massage industry that you would like to see updated, I'm sure there's more than one, but if we could start with the, the first thing that comes to mind with what, what needs to change? What do you think, Leah? I, I think the narrative most definitely needs to change. I think this is something that massage therapists get a little bit worried about. When they start to look at the BPS model and they start to delve into pain science, they pull back and they get really scared. And they think, oh God, what all this stuff that I need to learn, it's too much. What how do I how do I talk to people? How do I explain pain? How do I do all these things? Um I I I don't think it's as complicated as people think. And I think that where we we as a as a group uh not i guess i mean when i think about the skeptical massage therapists and i think about people like um nick and toby i i think that where we collectively might have fallen down is helping people transition from that old world because we all did it you know, I didn't go to a college that taught me pain science and the BPS model. I went to a college that taught me about structure and magic hands and changing tissue. I had to make that leap. I know that world. I've made that leap into the new world, really. So how did I do it? And how can I make it as easy as possible for people? I don't think that I, I think that what a lot of massage therapists do with their hands, whether it's whether they call it myofascial release or trigger point therapy or um, you know remedial massage or Swedish massage, I think a lot of what people actually do with their hands is good because a lot of people come back because they feel good. But I think that the narrative is the bad <laughs> and the magical hands thinking is um what really really needs to change and i i think we need to actually keep it simple i think we comp we way over complicate massage and i'm not really sure why that happened um i think in australia one of the reasons why it happened was because massage therapy uh, split kind of in the 20s or so and one group became physiotherapy and the other group stayed massage therapy and physiotherapy uh, went in a very different direction 
Um, they ended up in the hospitals. They ended up being respected. And I think um, massage the, you know, the, uh, the cousin kind of went, well, hey, we want that too. And that used to be us. Um, so there was this kind of internal battle, I think, probably in Australia and a lot of other countries. Um, and then we just started totally overcomplicating what we do and adding a whole bunch of junk science. Um, and I think physiotherapy is starting to do a reconciliation of what they've been doing for the last, you know, hundred years as well. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really buoyed because we're all doing this at the same time, which I think is really, really important. I think that there are enough people in osteopathy and chiropractic and physiotherapy and massage therapy who've gone, hey, wait a minute, what are we doing? And we are changing our narrative. And I think that's probably the, the biggest, that's the first step in my opinion. And, and one of the things that I, I took from that is also the the impact of community or relatedness. If we have other people showing the the differences in, in this application, if we have a community, you mentioned that the massage community is split into two. So then the question would be, why do they split into two? Were there certain groups, in groups, out groups within that community that um, wanted to practice a certain way or wanted to follow down a, a certain path? And if we could probably bring those two together because everyone wants to help each other. So the, I, the question I, would be, how, how can we create a sense of community to make that transition, as you mentioned, Leah, so much more smoother? Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I always say pain is bigger than one profession. And I think one of the things that the pain revolution and the explain pain guys, mostly and Butler have done is they have cast the net really wide and they've, they've really kind of said, if you touch people for a living, if you're a physical therapist or a manual therapist, you should know this because human beings walk in your door. So this is the umbrella that we're all sitting under. We all treat human beings. It's not that physios treat something else and osteopaths treat something else and massage therapists touch humans we're all treating humans so i i i think the whole pain science umbrella is is inclusive <laughs> love it that's getting getting it back to basics we're treating humans we're not treating structure i think that's one of the main things and across the board so for for all allied health professionals toby if, if we could open up the discussion to to your thoughts on on what first comes to mind when we think of things that need changing, updating? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to speak briefly to what Leah um, covered just there. I think, Leah, you made some fantastic points. And I will jump in and say something that Nick actually said before this whole discussion began. We were having a bit of a chat while everything was getting set up. and. He talked about how, for him, there was a degree of, uh, the, there was, everything became a little bit simpler when he started learning about pain science. And I think that's such a good point to, to repeat again and again, because when Leah talks about updating the narrative, 
um, it, it is very normal for people to, to react um, negatively to that idea because we all have a sense that when we practice, we're sensitive to the needs of the person in front of us. Um, we have a sense that we are, for the most part, quite good at our jobs. Um, and it's very easy to have an idea of updating a narrative um, that has within it this, this component of a, a more complicated and unnecessarily complex narrative that tries to reinvent the wheel, that tries to add layers of sophistication just for the sake of it. Maybe because some people who have developed a bit of an interest in academia um, suddenly think that everyone needs to go into unnecessary detail with their clients. And it's actually, I would argue, the opposite. Um, and Leah was already speaking to this, but what when we talk about updating the narrative, or at least when I think about it, I think about the confusion that you feel as, as a student when you're sitting there and you're learning about all the different manual therapy techniques and you're learning that, okay, in your diploma of remedial massage, we're going to teach you about trigger point therapy. We're going to teach you about myofascial release. We're going to teach you about, actually, each, each uh, educational institution is a little bit different, but it's going to be this little suite. And you, then you're going to have a shopping list of techniques that you should probably go out and prioritize learning when you finish up. Um, and that leads to this degree of fear and uncertainty as a practitioner, because suddenly you're in this position where say you're working with somebody and you're, you're not quite making the headway that you would like. Suddenly there's this voice in the back of your head that goes, well, it's probably because you don't understand X technique. You, you haven't done this training in Y. Um, if you do that, that'll open up a level of understanding um, into this field that obviously you're currently incompetent in. And that's why you can't help this person. And, and very quickly, you get this spiraling complexity that is really contrived. Um, and it's a complexity that's based on this idea that our separate manual therapy techniques are all doing something distinct, right? Um, and it certainly seems like they do because they have explanations um, within each. So trigger point therapy has its own um, explanation, which does, to be fair, update over time. And there are different explanations, but they have their own ideas about what's happening there. And myofascial release has its own broad ideas about what it's doing. So it, in order for them to be discrete um, areas of study that we should spend a lot of time learning, you have to accept that implicit idea that they really are working by different mechanisms. And when we talk about updating that, the narrative, such a big part of that is saying, well, actually, they have a far more in common than, than they have uh, separating them, right? And we can simplify our clinical reasoning process and we can simplify the training process by talking about the ways in which they are very, very similar, talking about the ways in which their outcomes are similar, um, really streamlining your mental model of when you would use them. And, the, and that, in my opinion, follows this form of, well, every person that walks in your door deserves to be treated as a unique person. And just like we might have preferences in other areas of our life, we have preferences in ways that we like to be touched. And of course, because of that, there are certain ways of touching somebody that will make them feel better than certain other ways. But 
you can stop there. You don't need to then go, well, it turns out that doing something that you would call trigger point therapy is more effective for this person. Therefore, I need to really dive deep into what trigger point therapy thinks it's doing to understand what's happening with this person. No, we can use a broad schema of understanding, which we'll call pain science, that is just an understanding of why and how things hurt and, and the ways in which how our body feels can change for all sorts of different reasons. And we can use that broad understanding to feel confident working with somebody, no matter where they're sore, really no matter whether what we're doing is helping or not helping, um, we can look at it through this one lens rather than having 50 lenses of different techniques that suddenly we have to go, well, the trigger point didn't work. I'll toss out its ideas about why people are sore. I'll try the myofascial release. That didn't work. Okay, I'll forget all about why myofascial release says people are sore. But oh, turns out if I do a little postural adjustment with this person, it makes them feel better. So now I'll base my whole understanding of what's going on with this person on that lens. I, my argument is that that is far more complicated and, and destabilizing both from the person receiving care and also the person trying to deliver it. That's, that's way harder than really stepping back and, and looking broadly, more simply, and in a way that um, by virtue of that simplicity, lets you feel com very comfortable just sitting down and talking to the person uh, in front of you and, and seeing where they're coming from. I don't wanna talk for too long, but the reason I say that, that, that makes it easier to have a conversation, is that one of the, the sad aspects of what the sort of the modality approach, so delineating between things like trigger point, myofascial release, Swedish massage, blah, blah, blah. Delineating between all these means that at some point it, it asks you to actually use their explanations when you're talking with your clients as well. Um, and it's really hard to have a great conversation where you're really reflecting on what somebody's coming to you with and, and going through a shared collaborative problem solving process when you're injecting explanations already into why they feel the way they feel and, and how we're going to have to address it. Um, explanations that are inherently specific in a way that really ends up boxing you in, in my experience. Um, and so when things invariably don't go very well, um, because all paths towards resolution have their ups and downs, right? Um, and sometimes there is no resolution. Um, invariably, when you experience those ups and downs, these are, these are painfully specific explanations and, and methods of treatment that do not cope well with these variabilities. And so you end up having to fall back on wishy-washy things like, oh, well, sometimes it takes a while for the, the massage to, to have an effect. Or, you know, it's, it's not that I did the wrong thing. Uh, it's not that this isn't appropriate for you. It is, but actually you're so far gone. You're, you're, you've, ha you've been dealing with this for such a long time that it, it makes perfect sense that, that, that my flawless therapy um, didn't really get us where we wanted to this time. All it indicates is we're going to need a lot more sessions in a shorter period of time to get us there. It makes you have to justify what you're doing in these kind of ludicrous ways. Um, when, when, if, if you're not burdened by those, you can sit down and go, yeah, that didn't really do very much. What do we think about that? And, and it makes perfect sense from this more zoomed out 
um, perspective. Um, hopefully that makes sense. I just I felt the need, Leah just hit the nail on the head, so I just had to gush about it for a while. Um, but yeah. That was great. So the, the narratives can be so fixed in certain modalities that it's hard for, for people to be flexible and see the underlying principles behind it. And uh, there's so much to unpack there. There's the interactive versus operator model. There's the sunk cost behind going through a treatment modality and, and then realizing it at the end, it's maybe not as helpful or it's working for different reasons. I think there's, there's so many things that we could perhaps uh, encompass with an underlying principle of pain science to then explain that, yes, these things can work perhaps for different reasons. And maybe we can be flexible to the human in front of us rather than trying to, to fix them with a throwing another modality at them. And if, and if that doesn't work, we're not competent enough. So now we have to take three other levels of the certification and then, then come back to me and, and then we'll, we'll fix you. Is that uh, it, we, we can be caught in a cycle as, as patients sometimes in our own cycle of fixing pain. So thank you for that insight, Toby. And, and Nick, I'll pass it over to you. I, I appreciate that you're coming from a different context and different set of experiences are really keen to, to hear your thoughts on what we should be doing, what, what needs to change, what can we update? It's not, I don't think it's that different. I mean, definitely different experiences, but uh, definitely not, but very common, but we all have very common grounds. That's, that's, all, that's why we're having this, this, this uh, discussion here. Um, I have two, uh, two thoughts in mind as I'm listening to both Leah and Toby here. One is what needs to be changed? Well, definitely, um, it's not just a narrative that needs to be reframed, but also the narrative on how we can reconcile, like I mentioned before, how, how, how we can re, uh, reconcile the narratives, the traditional narratives that people had for generations. Um, and one thing that I learned last month in light of uh, Black Lives Matter was um, a lot of, um, some people on how different massage therapy techniques and education have, where actually came from different indi um, indigenous peoples around the world, how um, adopt Westerners. And therefore, a lot of these um, cultures and histories and narratives were never given credit, or at least a proper credit, of why did this culture um, have this way of thinking, or where did this technique come from? It didn't really delve into it. I did not really get into that a lot. And coming from a background, because um, I kind of grew up with Chinese, with a traditional Chinese medicine back in Hong Kong as a kid, it was kind of like a family thing as well. It wasn't really, you know, called TCM, and at least in our family. It was just something that my grandpa, when they have shoulder and neck pain, we just take a, a little soup spoon and a little bit of, um, like a little rice bowl, like this right here, full of water, and we just scrape the skin. That's all we did. You know, we were called Guat that's all, that's all it is. We did it with our, our, our family, basically. My, my aunt used to do it to my mom and vice versa. And I get to do it to my mom, my mom too as a kid. It was kind of fun to watch her skin get red after a while. But yes, the, the narrative behind it, I, I learned as a kid, it was, uh, you know, it's not that great about why people feel better after that. But, um, but somehow that was never taught to me when I was uh, doing like these Asian healing modalities and stuff. And uh, I was pretty much like, hmm, this was never, our, um, our culture was never given credit. So what can we do to reconcile that? 
So that's what I've, I've been ex uh, exploring in the last couple of weeks with this uh, topic here. And the second thing uh, that Toby talked about earlier about how he has an uh, influence, has a lot of influence as well. And likewise, I do uh, have a similar thoughts too. Um, uh, Jeet Kune Do for about one year back in 2010, 2011. At the same time, I was doing Wing Chun Kung Fu as well. And a lot of stuff that I learned from it was basically, it's not about the technique itself. The technique where you learn, you know, with Paco Bong Sao. So the technique is limited. So you have to learn like different ways to, um, beyond the technique, beyond what you're told by your Sifu and um, to adapt to your environment, to adapt to your opponent in different contexts and situations in a, like, a, like a street confrontation, for instance. I mean, you, 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 I mean, you're not going to go like, you know, here's one, two, three, four, you know, when an opponent does this to you. That ain't going to work in real life. So that's what JKD uh, taught us is to really to improvise, to, um, it's kind of like DN, um, I wouldn't say DNM, <laughs> the dermal neuromodulation, but I was looking at pain science in a way that, that what pain science is, it's, um, it's a way of adapting to your client or your patient at the table in front of you, using the basic knowledge of, from pain science and also communication skills and be able to adapt your treatment with that unique in front of you. Same thing with martial arts. You got to have different ways to adapt to that unique confrontation you have, whether it's in the streets or in a competition ring. Awesome. So the, the theory that comes to, yeah, lots about the martial arts, that's for sure. But the, the question that, or the, the theory that comes to mind is the, the fact that it's, a, it's an ecosystem of a human in front of us and we need to uh, adapt to their beliefs and, and recognize that they're perhaps coming from a different understanding, a different context, and we need to learn how to work with their understanding versus trying to, to I guess, go, go the complete 180 with, with, I guess, the misperceptions of pain science and just talk to them and talk them out of pain and just explain their pain away. So, so I feel like uh, encompassing the, the cultural context is something that we're not taught. And maybe that can be taught in our, in our educational systems where maybe the importance of spirituality, the importance of the, the family, the importance of the social elements of one's experience is perhaps underplayed in our education system. Have I, would you, would you add anything there, Nick? Uh, not that I can think of it at the moment. Uh, there's something, to, but it's definitely need, it needs to be talked about, about the history and the culture of different, maybe uh, massage techniques or philosophies, different ways of thinking about the human health, how that can be reconciled with science, for instance. Like somebody, um, for example, I wrote a piece uh, about four years ago regarding the uh, what indigenous Australians um, have, uh, you know, how they communicate their pain with doctors. Why do they have a higher prevalence of back pain compared to white Australians? Why do they have to see help? Even though they have a hospital or a clinic in their town in Western Australia, why don't they their own, uh, their, their own people, their own healers, for instance? So there's a reason behind that that I looked into uh, and it's still ongoing today. And that caught me my interest like, huh, I didn't have not considered the social aspects of why certain populations of people, you know, do not do or do not seek certain type of medical help. So we need to talk about that more. Yeah, that is fascinating. It's definitely a topic that we don't talk about enough. If, if we were to respect everyone's time here and we'll leave the listeners with 
perhaps one piece of uh, actionable information that they can take away and and perhaps either think something differently or or pursue extra uh, resources if we could give a piece of advice for for the listeners out there who want to see a change want to make a change but perhaps are waiting for the system to change at the moment what can they do in the in the meantime where can we reach out leo i'll start with with you um i i would most definitely look at the explain pain group so the pain revolution people um they have got some really good straight to the point consumer friendly um information there and one of the things that the explain pain guys mostly in butler do really well is they explain pain without the massive deep dive that you can do obviously because pain science is fascinating but we we if we're learning pain for the very first time and we need to explain it to a client then we need to have it at a level a level which is understandable for us and it's understandable for them and i think that it doesn't have to be overly complicated it can be fun it can be full of individual metaphors and analogies and this is something that explain pain teaches us really well really listen to your client and really uh, listen to what that person is saying and if you understand pain at a really good basic level you can tailor your treatment to anybody by just understanding um, some really simple metaphors and jig them around, move them around a little bit for them. I used to work in IT and I used to tell the developers in my team a lot, just because you can doesn't mean you should. If you're going to put together a program or a database, you don't have to have 25 buttons. We're still dealing with humans here. You, you don't have to uh, overly complicate it. And so, it's our job to understand the complicated stuff, but we don't have to deliver it in a very complicated way, which is why I always harp on keep it simple um, and give the client resources if they want to deep dive. If they don't want to deep dive, you've given them a really basic overview of their own pain system, which is mostly what people are coming in for when they see a massage therapist. They're, they're usually in pain. Um, so we can't, um, we can't overcomplicate it, otherwise people will walk away and go, oh, I don't know what that was all about, the massage was good, but bleh. You don't have to dip everybody in pain science, you can keep it simple. And don't, don't think that what you're doing with your hands is, um is needs to change i i think there are a lot of things that make people feel better uh we've always touched each other primates other other species this is what diane jacobs talks a lot about with um social grooming uh, we've done it for for thousands millions of years we've done this we, d we don't need to overly complicate it um it's okay to, to make it simple. 
I, I think massage therapists are actually afraid to make it simple because then they think, oh, what is that person paying me $100 for an hour, which is actually quite a lot <laughs> when you really think about it. But the simple act of touching someone for a whole hour and listening to them is extremely therapeutic. If you do nothing else, touch them, listen to them, and provide them with the basics, help them move more, understand how, how important movement is to a moving species. And I think you're doing an awesome job. That's great. And, and definitely not sure about the US conversion there, Nick, but still $100 is a lot, uh, a decent amount of money. So, and I feel like you touched on a great point there, Leah, with, which is uh, the, the feeling, the stories that our minds tell us of imposter syndrome. And if we don't know enough, or if, if we don't sound like we have all the jargon, then we're not worthy of, of someone's time and money. So I think you, you touched on that point where we can still, we, we can still know all the complicated, complex um, theories and, and deliver it in such an effective manner that it appears simple, but it's a lot more um, valuable for the person if we keep it simple, right? Yeah, absolutely. We don't need to overcomplicate this. We don't need to dip everybody in pain science before they walk out the door. Um, we can, what we understand is really important because that changes what we say to people. And, and also it can kind of change what we do with our hands as well. Because if we're not changing structure, why are we hammering the heck out of so many people? You know, it's this whole no pain, no gain thing. Some people do come in wanting a lot of pain, but mostly it's because they've been told that if they, they want to fix things, it's going to hurt. And I, I always say I'm not going to hurt you. It can be firm, but I don't want your brain to start producing pain in response to my touch. So, you know, from a professional standpoint, I want to be in this industry as long as possible. How long do you think I'm going to be in this industry if I'm hammering people day after day after day? My thumbs, my wrists, everything is going to give out after 10 years, maybe even less, which is why we have such low retention in our industry, because we're exhausted. You know, our hands and um, fingers hurt. So I'm kind of like, you know what, this is actually in your interest as well for you to be able to be in this industry for a long time is stop, you know, really hurting people all the time. Take a step back, look at the pain science, look at the biopsychosocial model of, of um, you know, why people would be coming in thinking the things that they do and why their pain might be persisting. And it's, it's actually a lot more simple. We don't have to hammer people all the time. You get to massage people for longer and they get to walk away feeling happy and mobile without all this crap in their head. Perfect. Win-win situation, not only for patients, but for clinicians. Love that. Toby, if, if you could give a piece of advice for the listeners out there. I'll cheat and I'll make it two. The first one is to think carefully about what Nick was talking about, because the well, I can say that the the tragedy of this podcast episode, even as it's still going, is that 
um, I can already say in retrospect, the tragedy was that we didn't have the time to dig into that very much at all, right? Um, I'm reminded of a great presentation by a retired GP from Britain named Iona Heath, um, who used to be, if memory served, yeah, she was the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Um, and she, in, in, a, in a talk about some of the, the, the fear involved in the healthcare system and how that motivates well-meaning therapists to do the wrong thing, but for the, the noble reason of, of not wanting to mess up, specifically how it encourages over-treatment, um, but also fear on the side of patients who are worried about what they might have and what might happen to them. Um, she said that, it, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's an inescapable fact that healthcare and human beings have a plurality of values. Um, we like to think in healthcare that there's maybe one outcome. There's somebody is either healthier or, or unhealthy, right? Um, and that we're moving somebody in this in a direction that really in reality is, is not as straightforward as it appears. And I, I think Nick made a fantastic point that understanding what health and pain mean from a cultural perspective is fascinating and meaningful. Um, and it's really worth keeping in mind. Um, it's something I'll think about a lot more going forward. I would also say that it's something that is really, it goes hand in hand with this more zoomed out, broader ideas about pain science. So if you hear, if you're thinking, I'm not quite sure how what somebody's idea of what I'm doing affects really the massage that I'm giving them, um, maybe start with, with learning a bit about looking in more into pain science and the psychosocial components of pain and then um, maybe circle back onto it because I think it's hugely relevant and potentially something that can be much more easily addressed when you have a flexibility in, in your explanatory style that I, I think that you get from focusing more on these fundamental, simple, broader concepts rather than really specific explanations, which are not likely to gel very well at all with somebody with a, who, who may have a, a very different cultural background and, and experience. Um, so yeah, point one, think about what Nick said. Also think about what Leah said, but I just wanted to give that particular time because I'd already expounded on stuff that she said that I thought was great. Um, my piece of advice is to think, if, if you want something that is actionable, um, in your work, think about how you might be pigeonholing yourself with the way that you structure the session and the way that you explain what you're doing. Pay attention to times when you may decide that a different track is is more appropriate for a patient, and and note whether there's any sort of discomfort that you're suddenly faced with. Uh, do you kind of have to go back on what you'd said previously? Do you need to do a little bit of mental gymnastics in justifying why you want to go down a different path? Um, maybe you, you're not having to struggle with this, but you are having to say to somebody, "Oh." I was on the, I went down the wrong track before. I think this is where we need to be going. Um, and just think about, you know, some of these things are significant, some of them are not. I'm not saying that you should never make these kinds of mistakes because I think they are 
inevitable. They're, they're part of this, this process. But being more aware of, of when you might be tripping yourself up can, I think, give you some that perspective if you're on the fence about whether it's worth changing the way that you speak. Going, well, would, would there be a way of talking to this person in front of me um, from the outset that had made perhaps the idea that it will be, there'll be a bit of trial and error involved, made that more normal? Um, would it have been easier if I hadn't started explaining trigger points immediately? Things like that. Um, that can be something to get you started. Great. So great reflection points to, to think back on those times where maybe there are gaps in your application of, of the knowledge at the moment or where you're finding most challenging. And maybe there are ways that, as, as Leah mentioned, maybe some, some resources out there with explained pain, they can, and there's a community out there that can lend some support to help that transition period to, to improve your confidence with applying this, this, these new skills. So Nick, if you could give one piece of advice or you're now allowed to, because Toby opened up to two. So you have my permission. Go for it. So some, some practical piece of advice for, for the listeners. I've always told myself to stay curious. I used to watch a lot of uh, these, uh, these uh, children's programs back when I was a kid, back in the eighties, they had three to one contact. They had a, what else was show they had, they had um, reading rainbow and a couple of other uh, Mr. Wizard. And later on in the early nineties, it was Bill Nye, the science guy. And those kind of shows really peaks, you know, children's and teenagers interest in how the world works. And so as adults, well, why don't we fall back into that kind of thinking? Ask questions, stay curious. How does this work? And why does it work? So always keep asking why, because eventually you probably dig it, um, <laughs> dig, dig, dig out the truth a little, a, a little more. That's just my personal experience, just by asking a lot of questions. Awesome. It's such a, such a valuable asset to have the sense of curiosity and, and the willingness to learn something new and to hear someone's uh, perspective as well. So that's the sense of curiosity when we're with a patient in front of us that has a, an interesting story and as well as sense of curiosity as to why maybe some of the things we're doing are, are working. So I think that's a, that's a skill to have for, for the rest of our lives inside and outside the clinic. Yeah, and adding on to that part about listening to your to your, to your patients, uh, it kind of fall, pretty much falls back to narrative medicine, where uh, instead of being the operator versus the interactor, instead of being an operator where the therapist tells the patient about what they're going to do to them, why they hurt, uh, how many sessions they need to go to get better, interactive approach lets the patient to be part of the treatment plan rather than having a therapist being the authority. So a narrative medicine, for example, one, one way would be like, tell me more about your problem. How long have you had his back pain for? Oh, so were you telling me that when you come back from work, it hurts, but when you have a beer, watch Netflix, the pain is, uh, is gone. Or you had a, uh, you know, a really bad relationship in the last 10 years, and you just got out of it and you just feel better and you know, all, all, all this stuff, ask questions. Same thing when you're interacting with your client or your patient. Perfect, it, it goes with uh, a lot of the issues perhaps in, 
in the social justice sphere when we're not curious about someone's culture, we're not curious about their history, we're not curious to learn things that perhaps are invisible to us, we're not curious to hear their own perspective and story, we're, not, we're forgetting to treat someone like a human. Lady and gentlemen, it was an absolute pleasure to have you all together at the same time as well. So thank you, Nick, for making the time for us on the other side of the world. And I'm really keen to, to keep these conversations happening. I feel like the more we build a sense of community and, and a sense of collaboration with, with like-minded professionals who are, such a, who are so passionate like you all, I think the, the better it is for our industry moving forward. So thank you all so much. And until next time. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Daniel. What you do. Thank you, everyone. Awesome. Thanks so much.